This is our second week. This is the beginning of the second week of programs. As you remember, as you may recall, unless this is your first program, like Susan Glass, the topic, Susan, for the whole month is Fulfilling the Dream, the Fascinating Story of Modern Israel. You'll be with us in Israel, so this ties into uh, preparing us for those of you who are going to Israel with us in October. Um, this week we have a lunch program, an evening program, a lunch program that are classes. Um, our program today is the second of, in two par uh, four parts, Creating a Nation. We're going to focus on Yemenite Jews returning home. And then tonight, um, the professor will be speaking at Congregation B'nai Tzedek in Fountain Valley, the topic, the Arab citizens of Israel, Israelis or Palestinians. Um, if Mike is there, Mike, are you bootleg copying? Are you the one doing it, bootleg taping? Okay, you may hear a lot of heavy breathing because Mike has it in, he, I don't know, whatever. <laughs> so if Norm does it, it turns out okay. Um, tomorrow, which is Wednesday, um, Heritage Point is hosting a program for the first time. Topic is a fledgling nationalism, Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank. Tomorrow evening is our CSP program, Golda Meir, a determined and committed Zionist. Thursday, lunch program, Syria, Civil War and its implications. And Friday, University Synagogue is hosting Judaism, Christianity, and Islam in the holy and unholy city of Jerusalem. Shabbat, maximalism and minimalism, the confusing question of the territories, Beth Jacob. Saturday night, uh, 53 years in Israel, a personal story, CSP patron, Legacy Circle. So if you're a CSP patron or a member of our Legacy Circle um, or a member of our board, then uh, please make sure you've signed up because it, we're, we're catering dinner. Uh, the theme is food from Israel. And I drove the caterer crazy because I said, I don't want like hummus and falafel. Uh, oh. I want sub-themes from all the communities we're talking about. <laughs> so it's going to be a mixture of Russian and uh, Sephardi yep. food. And um, it's, a, it's an unusual collection of food, but it's being catered. So if you haven't signed up, please join us. If you're not a member of our Legacy Circle, that's the easiest way to get in. You sign a non-binding letter of intent. You join our Legacy Circle. You say you'll give something to CSP one day, and you get to go to a free dinner and many other benefits. So see me if you want to join our legacy circle. With that, please take a moment to turn off your phones and um, we will get started. started. Please join me in welcoming back to the, the lectern, Professor Paul Lips from somewhere in Israel, north of Tel Aviv, That's right. right? That's right. Keep Thank you. Good. There you go. Thank you. Um, this is a good time for me because I finished one quarter of my ma marathon. <laughs> so, so it's a good time to, to be here. So I've done eight, and uh, this is number nine. Uh, I've just got two points to make at the beginning. Firstly, I'm having a wonderful time. And the second point is, really, I'm having a wonderful time. So uh, I'm having a wonderful time. Uh, it really has been, and I mean it all seriousness, the warmth, the friendship, uh, yesterday, my wife and I spent the whole day in the Japanese garden in San Diego, seeing lots of lovely things and meeting wonderful people. Um, the topic today is the Yemenites, part of the four-part series on uh, different groups in Israel. Uh, I just want to say something in case I haven't said it before, um, but I'm saying it more increasingly. I, I want to make sure that everyone has my email if they so need it. Uh, it's easy. P. Paul. P. Lips, L-I-P-T-Z, it's on the same as it appears everyone else, uh, at gmail.com. And surprisingly, I've given this out to some groups. Have I given it to you yet? I can't remember. Yeah. I've given it to some groups, and I'm, the, the emails are pouring in. I, I, it's so delightful for me. 
Because I always say learning is not just about what one does in, in this kind of framework, but some sort of relationship afterwards. And uh, some of the issues that are coming up are, are amazing. Um, someone uh, quoted me a sentence that I'd said, and was it correct? And it was correct. Uh, I got one uh, last night. Uh, someone who, who's told his parents had left Germany in 1937. They had family in Israel. Uh, he's lost total contact with the family. Would I help him try and find family members? So two contacts in Israel. If, if they don't work, my wife's going back next Tuesday, and she'll carry on trying. She's much better than I am. But even if she fails, which is unlikely, uh, then uh, we'll manage to find the family. And he has two friends, um, one of whom lives in the same part of Israel where our son lives, one of our children live. And so this is all for me what it's about. So please, at any time, any questions, any issue, uh, from now until... You know, next 20 years, I'll probably still be okay. Uh, you're more than welcome. Okay, uh, second, the second interesting thing, uh, I was at um, uh, one of my sessions, uh, someone comes up to me and he, he knew the four groups that I'm talking about. Uh, we did the Holocaust survivors, the Yemenites, the Beta Israel, the Ethiopians, and Russians. And he said, I want to tell you, I don't understand. Why haven't you got the Iraqis down as well? So I said, you know, there are 12 waves of Jews who've come to Israel. I just didn't have time. But he said to me, but the Iraqis, you know, which is kind of uh, ethnic pride, which I'm always very happy with. So uh, apologies if you're expecting some group and it isn't there. A little bit about the handout. Um, I, as I always say, I don't give the handout so I will be reading it. And, and there'll just be one different case study. But just to, to say a few words about the handout, because I try very hard in trying to sort of give a, a wider view of society. The first section of the handout is a lovely little piece about uh, Ye Yemenite food. And as Ari mentioned uh, at the, the big dinner, uh, I'm sure Yemenite food will be there because Israeli food is basically Yemenite. Uh, Israelis love Yemenite, and so there's a lovely little section about Yemenite and a part of Israel in Tel Aviv, which is kind of the Yemenite area. There's a small area of Tel Aviv which is very, very Yemenite. The other I'm going to speak about in more detail about, and that's what the, the, the famous immigration of Yemenite Jews to Israel uh, in 1949, 1950, a very dramatic story. Um, and the um, uh, one or two words about the bibliography. The bibliography on the Yemenites has changed. It's, it's amazing. Some groups, you have the books written 20, 30 years ago, and they're still relevant. Not with the Yemenites. The, Yemenite, the, the picture of Yemenites in Israel uh, has been, uh, to put it, uh, I think honestly, condescending. The Yemenites were the sweet people. They were the somewhat exotic so a lot of the early literature was kind of trying to explain an exotic people. As time went by, the Yemenites didn't like this being this exotic part so much. You know, exotic sounds okay, but except if you're part of the definition. So, uh, so uh, literature has changed, and as I'll be uh, mentioning, there is one very, very serious issue uh, which I'll go into in more detail, and that's the whole issue of the disappeared children. So big, big issue in Israel until today. There was a court case two, two weeks ago which related to it as well, and I'll explain 
uh, as time goes on, exactly what that is about and what is sort of, if one is a Yemenite, uh, they really wouldn't be interested in what I'm talking about, but they'd be very interested in, in this particular court case and its possible uh, implications. So what do we know about the Yemenites? The Yemenites are considered today uh, by the, the serious scholars in the realm of language and literature to be the most, most authentic Jews. Uh, in people who study Hebrew, Hebrew accents, uh, which is, I'm a disaster because I can't get the chet and the iron. I can't get the gutturals. So someone listens to me for a week and says, anglo saxi you know, no, I've just been here 50 years, anglo saxi So if you, I can't get it. But the people who are into the Hebrew language, the gutturals and the correct gutturals, are extremely important and indicate very clearly where someone is from. And the, the Yemenites are see, perceived uh, both in their religiosity, which is a different religiosity from modern Judaism. By the way, we know Judaism's gone in very different kind of directions, but it's perceived that the religiosity of the Yemenites is the genuine uh, uh, um, religiosity, um, essentially 10th, 10th century BCE. That's the kind of... Now, why is it so interesting? The Yemenites have been tremendously uh, diligent at recording their past through oral tradition. And, you know, the, the, the historian where literary sources of what we can we have to base it on, um, are very different when you have the oral tradition, which tends to be much, more, much broader and much more human. Uh, written resources, uh, resources often take leadership models or, or church models or, or rabbinical models. Uh, you know, if we look at Rambam, uh, Maimonides, um, sometimes he goes to the wider population, but often it's very much the core, the core uh, religious leadership of that period in Spain or North Africa or in Egypt, uh, wherever he was. So this is really why the Yemenites have been uh, so interesting. Now, what happened with the Yemenites in terms of their Judaism we often speak about it, but I think the Yemenites might have succeeded perhaps more than any other group, and that is Judaism for them is the totality of their life. It's, it's a 24-7 kind of phenomenon, uh, which as you go into modernity, that becomes much more difficult. But Yemenites, even contemporary traditional Yemenites today, still have this phenomenon of a total, what we might call the holistic approach uh, to religion, um, their, their prayer is very, very communal prayer. Um, they, they had rabbis, but everyone knew the text. So, so prayer is a, is a collective phenomenon, uh, not as increasingly happens in the modern world, where it's the rabbi who is the religious authority, and then you might have a small number in the community who are well-informed. In the, in the Yemenite circle, it tends to be much stronger than that. Their poetry is religious poetry, very, very powerful uh, religious poetry. They sang a great deal. Tremendous amount of singing. But at the same time, at a, t at a period in Yemen, which some of you may know, I'm sure many of you know, is just about the most depressing part of the world. Now, there are a number of other depressing parts of the world. But in terms of being a desert area, 
Yemen is, is a disaster. It's a, it's a, it's a very, very tough uh, terrain, very dry, uh, very rocky. Um, its history has been tragic, particularly in the 1950s and 60s when Yemen was divided. The Saudis supported one group and the Egyptians supported another group. So it was absolutely chaos, as is Yemen, to, uh, Yemen today. So Yemen remains a very, very tragic situation. So what, what's that to do with the Jews? The Jews, therefore, uh, although a fairly high percentage were in the capital, Sana'a, uh, in the south, the Jews tended, because of survival issues, to go to the small villages where they could survive. Because a small village could cope with a small number of people, and the Yemenites were there. And here we find one of those tensions in history. The story goes that when they were living in the little villages, they had good, good relations with the local Muslims. But when they had contact with the authorities, the religious authorities, the position was totally different. So it's kind of one of those histories. There are other Jewish communities around the world. I personally have studied 23 Jewish communities, so I can say this uh, as a comparative comment. Uh, Yemenite is really one of those situations where you might be saying totally different things at the same time. When you're seeing a pogrom in Sana. Somewhere in another part of Yemen, the people might be living very, very quietly and nicely. And why were the Jews accepted at a time of tremendous religious intolerance in various parts of the Muslim world, as there have been periods of tremendous intolerance in the Christian world, was basically because they had skills, handicrafts, embroidery, jewelry, very important, by the way, quite generally in North Africa, with North African jewelry, uh, you find handicrafts very important. Just to jump, jump the topic for a moment, Moroccan jewelry established themselves because they made the clothes, the, the, the uniforms of the Moroccan army. Uh, very, very deliberate jewelry and very beautiful, and the army was an elite force. So this is kind of something which we find in Lebanon, in, in, in uh, sorry, in Yemen, and we will find in certain other uh, North African uh, communities as well. Now, the the intolerance of Yemen to Jews, particularly as I say, when it comes from the establishment, is what is called the Pact of Omar of 634 uh, um, CE, after, uh, you know, um, CE, um, which places and establishes and legalizes the realms of discrimination. And the Pact of Omar, which sometimes I would spend half an hour dealing with if that was a, you know, the, the center of what I was trying to do, um, had the following kind of restrictions. Uh, the Jews are supposed to clean the latrines. That's an instruction. The Jews are not allowed to ride on horses, good on donkeys. Uh, the Jews, uh, if a Muslim is coming opposite you, you have to walk off the sideway. Um, uh, a Jew, if there is a court case, uh, the evidence of the Muslim is accepted and not of the Jew, and in this case, by the way, it also specifically says the Christian. Therefore, it relates in some situation to the dhimmis, the peoples of the book. And although in many cases it refers to the Jews because they were a 
defined population, only a very small number of Christians ever existed in Yemen, it really does become out to be essentially uh, very, very much uh, anti-Semitic. Um, the, um, the, the, your, your religious houses, your, your synagogues equivalent, had to be of a particular style and uh, very, very low. By the way, the Pact of Omar has a very interesting overall theme, and that is height has to be the Muslim, and as you go lower, you can be Jewish. So, you know, you say, what's the big deal about the horse? Well, the horse is higher, a donkey is lower. So the Jews could go on the donkey. Uh, a mosque being higher, then the synagogue has to be lower. And not only was that the case, is of some amazing, amazing information we have about Yemenite schools. The Yemenite schools were often, talking about maybe 100 years ago, maybe a bit more, were often in what we would consider kind of dungeon basements. Once again, low, not seen. And this, I'm talking about Yemen, but you can take European Jewish history and see that in Spain, where is the synagogue? The synagogue's not on the main street, but on a little side street, and you don't know it's the synagogue because it just looks like a house. So this is, we're talking about Yemen, but we're talking something which also has a, a broader uh, Jewish implications. So what happens in the, in the schools was, was fascinating. The school of the uh, Yemenite children had certain similarities with the madrasa. The madrasa is the Islamic college, the, the learning situation. In both cases, both with Yemenite Jews and with Muslims generally, rote learning is what's important. So unlike in our rabbinic Judaism, where the wrote knowing, knowing the, the various chapters and verses is important, but it's based on an argumentation, you know, obviously starting from Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel and all through the various rabbinic period, we know that Judaism very much generally in the, in the more Western world um, went much towards a, a concept of discussion and disagreement. Uh, in Yemenite society, it was much more rote learning. Now, what happened in the schools was something very, very interesting. In the schools, a very, the very poor Jewish populations, uh, everyone was poor. The Jews, maybe even a touch richer because they're a touch better educated and not so much involved in agricultural work. Some Jews were in agricultural work, but just by being sort of closer to the center in a village makes you somewhat better off than the peasant out in the field. Uh, but they, they limited amount of money. And books have always been unbelievably expensive until one of the great revolutions of humanity is the printing press. But uh, even in the period of the printing press, Yemenite Jews had very little easy to print printing press. So what would happen, uh, firstly, boys only. The girls had very, very limited education. And we know this when the Yemenite uh, Yemenites eventually arrived in Israel, how uh, poorly the uh, women were educated. The, um, the boys would sit around the teacher, the melamed, and wherever you sit, that was how you learned. So listen to me. An Ashkenazi from Rhodesia, 
What do I know? As a student at the Hebrew University, in our building on the old campus, Givadram campus, there was a Yemenite god. At the front of every building, there was a god. In the old days, it wasn't for security reasons. It was, he sat there. Now, I'm looking, and he's reading the newspaper upside down. And I was in all pun. And I knew which way you read the newspaper. And I, with my good British colonial condescending background, feel terribly sorry for him, walk past him every single day, and see this poor guy doesn't know how to read the newspaper. So I am just about to go to him to try in my best and broken Hebrew to tell him that if he turns the paper around, people won't know that he's illiterate. You see, this is being the outsider. When you're an outsider, you think you're doing the right thing. Nine out of ten times, you do the wrong thing. As I was telling a, a friend of mine, in, we were studying together, what I was going to do, he said, take it easy. Take it easy, you know. But he said it rather in a condescending way. And then he told me the little story that obviously that fellow in the Yemenite school had always sat opposite the teacher. And therefore, he had always read Hebrew upside down. And that happens because I've been in Yemenite synagogues and you see some of the old folk twisting their books around and I thought they were just so brilliant because they knew the Hebrew letters from any angle and all it meant was then they were in Yemen, they were on the other side of where the book was. So this is a totally different culture, very different culture, different kind of people. Now, the Yemenites, as part of their religiosity, always dreamed of going to Eretz Israel. That was what they wanted. So much of their literature, you know, so much if you're totally into Jewish studies, at a certain time, wherever you are, whatever century you are in Jewish history, somewhere over there is Eretz Israel. You know, the famous uh, Spanish Jewish poet, Yehuda Levi, he loves Spain, he's accepted in Spain, he had a good life in Spain, he lived in the Irvine of Spain, but he knew that eventually he would have to go to Eretz Israel, and everyone around him was surprised, yeah, you've got a good life, you have status, the poets of, of uh, Spain, Jewish Spain had tremendous status and uh, financial support from the, from the patrons, um, no, but you have to go to Eretz Israel. The Zionist, modern Zionist movement starts essentially in the 1880s. It's political Zionism. And in the 1880s, the early immigrants start coming essentially from Western Europe, Romania, and a little later in the beginning of the 20th century, uh, more from Eastern Europe and, and different parts of the world. The Yemenites hear about it. And their analysis that this, this isn't political Zionism. They're not interested in Theodore Herzl. Only Ari's interested in Theodor Herzl. That's why you got the notebook of Theodor Herzl and David Ben-Gurion, okay? But what does he know about Yemenite Jewry? So here we are. <laughs> yeah, Ari, you're actually my friend. I quite like you. Uh, the <laughs> yeah, the <laughs> here we have uh, uh, Yemenite Jews, Messianic Jews. Messianic Jews. The Messiah is coming. If Jews are returning to Eretz Israel... 
It's not about Theodore Herzl and Chada Am and Jabotinsky and all the Zionist leaders. It's about this is the coming of the Geula, coming of the redemption. So they start slowly but surely in the most unbelievably difficult situations, which, by the way, we will repeat next week when we speak about better Israel, the moving from where they lived in the Gondar province to eventually come back to the homeland from their perspective. That was starting to happen. They somehow get to what was then Ottoman-controlled Palestine, Eretz Israel, and they come in in very, very small numbers, looking at the world totally different from the Western Jews who had been educated with the modern Haskalah kind of perspective. So they're coming into Yemen at the end of the 18th century, and, you know, like anything, word of mouth, which is this amazing phenomenon of pre-modern technology, how word of mouth actually works, oral tradition works as a, as a remarkable way, the, the people in Yemen coming from these little villages and how they ever got the information, one doesn't know until today, they start slowly realizing that this was a new period in their lives. Now, the imam, the, the political religious leader of Yemen, would not allow them to leave. Why? They had skills which the society required. Craftspeople. Most of the people are poorly educated peasants. So in that kind of situation, you know, they're the doctors and the lawyers and then the, the skilled people of, of their society. Um, and uh, here these people slowly start moving in. The problem is much more complicated than we can imagine. In 1911, a shaliach, an emissary, goes from Eretz Israel goes to Yemen, and thinking that he, should, he would educate them about what's happening in the Holy Land, starts telling them that sometime down the, la uh, the, the, the road, the land of Israel would be returned to the people. The people get so excited about it, they all want to pack their bags and come. 1911, that area is under the Turks. And after 1917, that area is under the British. And the British have a certificates policy. They control the amount of people that can come to Israel. And here we begin to see one of the crises which exists in a much lesser sense today in Israel, but in the early period was very, very serious. The Ashkenazim, good people like David Ben-Gurion and his friends, ask the question, where is it really hard to be a Jew? They come from Eastern Europe. They know the pogroms of the 1880s up to 1914, 1870 to, to 1914. They know how difficult it is. And therefore, when they have a chance of bringing people in, essentially during the British period where transport improves, they allocate the certificates to the Ashkenazim who from their perspective are in real crisis. And they don't know what's going on in Yemen. Now there had been some Yemenites coming into the country, 
But no one really sat down and asked questions. You know, when immigrants come in, very, very few countries ask who you are, you, and what are you all about. Countries aren't interested. And we imagine that Jewish people are going to be different, but they're not. If you're trying to build a country, you're concerned with what do you need to build the country. However, in the case of Yemen, Yemen, there is one value which they have, and that is that they're laborers. They've worked in the villages, craft work and physical work, some kind of physical work. So basically, Ben-Gurion's quite happy with them, and they come to two or three areas, uh, and they become working people. Now, David Ben-Gurion builds a very positive idea of them, because most Jews in the world are not schleppers. What do we do? You know, we sit, we discuss, we eat hummus and falafel, and we don't do any physical work. I mean, not many of us. So he's kind of quite happy with them. But the problem is, when this particular gentleman in 1911 goes to see them and tells them that somewhere along the line there will be the Jewish entity, I don't know if they use the word state, they think he's the Messiah. He is coming to fulfill the messianic dream. At long last, someone has come, and for century after century after century, when it was believed that the day would come, who knows when, and that will be the redemption, this poor guy suddenly thinks he's told the Messiah. And he's having a lot of trouble. He writes about it. He says, no, I'm a regular guy. You know, I'm not what you think. But the Yemenite Jews are getting very, very excited about it. But their moment comes about only when the state of Israel is created. State of Israel is created, no longer restrictions of the British. The Jewish people are flocking in, as I said in one other session, uh, between 1948 late 47 and 1951, the Jewish population doubles 650,000 to 1.2 million. Many, many, one quarter of them are Holocaust survivors. People are flocking into Israel. At that time, the unbelievable uh, statistics we have are, is that essentially um, in a period of just a few months, 44,000 people were brought in in 420 flights of LL planes, called on the wings of eagle, and a little later, the magic carpet. The wings of evil comes from Exodus. The, uh, this idea that the Yemenites come in. 44,000 people, almost the whole of the community. And years later, until very recently, by the way, the idea is... How do you get the few hundred who's still there? This is the only known case that we have of an almost 100% aliyah because this is the redemption. This is not political aliyah. This isn't leaving because of anti-Semitism. They've experienced anti-Semitism for hundreds of years. So much so, by the way, that the great Maimonides Rambam in a wonderful uh, epistle, wonderful little uh, um, small uh, handout, so to speak, uh, writes, 
He even understands those people, those Jews who, when they are threatened, are allowed to hide their Jewishness. To save your life, you can hide your Jewishness. And Rambam has mentioned it in other realms, but he writes this whole little booklet um, saying to the Yemenite Jews, yeah, this is uh, uh, written a long, long time earlier, obviously, uh, it, it's 1172, that we understand that you're in crisis. So it is a real crisis. Be it as it may, this 44,000 Yemenite Jews arrive. They are so happy to get to Eretz Israel that unlike any other Jew in Israel, they do not complain. <laughs> and everyone loves them. Who doesn't love a non-complaining Israeli? I mean, it is a rare creature. You don't quite know where they come from. Not only don't they complain, they prepare to do hard work, Jewish labor, Avodai Vrit, the great goal of the Zionist movement, that Jews will no longer be middle class people, that we will develop the land, the whole kibbutz idea in 1909, that the Jews will make will develop the land. This will be the change of the Jewish people. By the way, that's before we knew that they were Palestinian workers. So uh, that, that, that's rightly changed the, the Zionist dream. Uh, or then we got Korean workers and Filipinos, and then we kind of forgot our Zionist dream. But be it as it may, here we are that these people are prepared to work, but they have other things. And this is very appealing to Israelis. Firstly, although everyone in Israel has to be, decide whether you're Ashkenazi or Sephardi, the Yemenites say they don't want to belong to either. But in good old Israeli intolerance, they told you have to be one. So they say, well, we're kind of a bit more like the Sephardim than the Ashkenazim, so they call us Sephardim. But they're not. They're different. But they bring with them some interesting things. They bring with them the old Hebrew language. The language experts of the Hebrew University are delighted. They bring with them old Jewish customs. When a, a Yemenite woman gets married, uh, she has within her, they have a kind of a lot of clothing on them, she has within her gold and, and uh, jewelry and things, and that's the, the dunya, that's the, the, the bride price, this whole concept of the bride price, which is received from the, from the husband's side. A whole lot of traditions come in, which are very, very important, so much so that the most beautiful coffee books that I've seen about Israeli society are always about the Yemenites. It's beautiful. They have lots of ceremonies. I've been to some of the Yemenite ceremonies. You really feel, you know, you, you really get a sense well, this is, excuse the expression, authentic Judaism. This is what it used to be like. Uh, it's not so much about arguing about text, uh, which is Talmud is basically, Jews love te Talmud because it's all about argumentation. But they really, it really is this beautiful thing. Yemenite food floods the market. Very, very tasty food. So many people would come to Israel many years later and say, you know, where do we get good Israeli food? Go to a Yemenite restaurant. By the way, it does affect one's stomach. If it's the first time you ever do it, take the food slowly. Um, because it is really a quite, uh, uh, quite unbelievable. The, um, the, the, the influx of the Yemenite 
is considered the most successful of all the immigrants that came. They had these talents, they blended well in the society, um, in, in a country of all, all immigrant countries. I, Israel is no different than this. You have stereotype images about the newcomers. You know, as I said, uh, it, it's a known comment. It's said in Israel a great deal. Um, we, we like immigration until the immigrants come. So um, the, the Yemenites did a great job, terrific job. And it seemed all okay. Until something started seething. And this is what has caused them great, great pain. And that is the issue of the children who disappeared. Let's go back to the early period. The physical conditions in Yemen were ghastly. Some of the people to get to Sana, to get on those LL airplanes, which are flying in and out and in and out, just after the end of the War of Independence to bring them back, some of them had walked 250 miles to get to Sana. And they were in terrible condition. By the way, they were in terrible condition because the Yemenite Jews, when they left their homes and they had very little energy to carry things, they carried their Taurus scrolls. They would not leave their communities without a Taurus scroll. And so you have the image, and we have pictures, and there's some early YouTube uh, snippets where you would see someone carrying a Torah scroll and a child. It is believed that approximately 600 children and some small number of adults died in the uh, waiting camps of Sana before they came to Israel. We're talking about a sickly population at that time. Between 70 to 80% suffered, had eye diseases. They're coming into Israel eventually, and clearly some die. Now, when I arrived in Israel in 1967, and a little bit after, it's in the early 70s, I was hearing this. I went to a class uh, at the Hebrew University of uh, Jews of, North, of uh, North African origin, and I remember the professor sort of dealt with this issue kind of as a, as a side comment. You know, and anything that's a side comment is the kind of thing that then I like to study because I'll make it a central comment. So I was very interested, slowly but surely, one hears the following reality which I believe to be correct. I say I believe to be correct because now there have been three commissions of inquiry, which I will try and summarize in the next three minutes. Excuse the lack of detail. The Yemenites arrived. They're placed at that time, it's just after the end of Israel's war of independence. One percent of the population has been killed. Mass immigration is coming in. By the way, when I look at the immigration figures of those times, you know, suddenly 5,000 people would arrive to a bureaucracy which didn't exist. 
because it had been British controlled. It was a Jewish agency, a, a proto-state to use the, the, to the, the, the Yeshuv, the, the early period. So the, the, uh, the bureaucratic democracy is very poor. Uh, uh, incorrect um, understanding of the Yemenites. Uh, by the way, when, when the Yemenites speak Hebrew, it's almost impossible to hear the gap between the words because you think they're singing a song. And it initially, and even when later groups came 20 years ago, I remember them being interviewed on TV. I, I had, you know, I'd record it and then put it on slow so to, to try and work out when the one word ended and the next word started. Very, very hard for the, most of our ears. Some of the people got it better, but it was quite hard for us to understand it. Poor documentation, not quite having details, children who were sick. Now comes the most difficult part. Holocaust survivors are coming in at the same time. Holocaust survivors have lost their children. Many Holocaust survivors, as part of a response to Shoah, married very, very quickly in the displaced persons camp. It was not about love. It was, I've lost all my family, you've lost all your family, we in a displaced persons camp in Europe or the camps in, in Cyprus, where the, when the, if the British had caught them, we're going to marry. Better than the alternatives. Arrive in Israel and would love to have children. But what had happened to their bodies didn't enable them. And so there are cases, we have no idea of the number, when they heard that there were very small, sickly children, they didn't know where the parents were, the children were in some sort of hospital or some sort of care, and some of the children were apparently picked up by the Holocaust parents who said, we can give them, although we've been through our crisis, what no one else can give. We have absolutely no idea of the number. Problem number one. Problem number two. Because of the nature of the sand of Israel, the sand in certain parts of the country moves. Babies were buried. And they might have even put some details 20, 30 years later, when this whole issue of the disappeared children comes to the fore, people want to say, did our child really die? So in the middle of the night, they go to some of the graveyards and they dig where they're supposed to be the body of the child, the, the bones of the child. However, because of moving sands, they look there and no body, no bones of the child. Therefore, they feel desperate people. People who are looking for their children 20 years later, understandably, say, uh-huh. This is kind of a Zionist conspiracy. They said our children are dead, but they're really alive. But what, all that happens is that the bones have moved over. I mean, these are horrendous things. There is great pain 
among the Yemenites for this issue, on this issue, which one can understand. Three commissions of inquiry, serious as anything, serious, these are serious people. When Israeli lawyers get onto these kind of issues, you know, it's not about uh, some legal issue. This is, this is the core of your country. So the commissions of the inquiries are very good. Now, the three commissions of inquiries have essentially said, if it may well be that a certain number of children were in fact taken totally illegally from this, uh, I, I don't know if it was exactly a hospital or a, uh, a, a sort of a holding area, I'm not quite sure exactly what it would have been then. Um, the, uh, there, there might have been some cases like that. Um, and there, there may have been other cases where, you know, children even were a little bit older and at the absorption centers. Remember, we have lots of, we have lots of orphans in, in the country in, in, from 49 onwards. A lot of children are coming from Europe, orphan children from Europe. So there's a whole scramble which going on there. Uh, some of the orphan children go to the kibbutzim, but the kibbutzim can't cope with everyone. So parent, people who haven't got children are kind of picking up the children. It's, and here comes this crisis of information. I'm reading articles in the last 10 years where in one of the last articles I read with absolutely no validity to what seems to have happened, the writer makes the following comment, and perhaps as many as a thousand Yemenite children were stolen. You know what information's all about? One person writes a figure anytime. Who knows who that person is? That's what the trouble we're having with internet at the moment. Who knows the validity of what we're reading? And then it sounds a good idea, so we tell our friends, you know, so-and-so, so-and-so is going on. We don't, we don't really often know. So the, 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 the issue of this tremendous lack of correlation from what I believe to be correct, of a smallish number, a smallish number, who knows, 50, 60, maybe 100, as distinct from 1,000, which is a big figure, has caused a kind of tremendous sense of ill at ease. The last court case, which came out, must be a month and a half ago or something like that, has decided that there may in fact have been 11 disappeared children. But statistics are only if statistics are what you want to believe. If your heart and feeling is somewhere else, and this is what you believe has happened. And I've met Yemenites who say, we've got two children, but somewhere around there's the other one. Can any of us say, you don't know what you're talking about. You have to empathize. And this is where we are on the Yemenite issue at the moment. Oh, DNA, not too many people want to go into that thing. And that's uh, also, you see, for the people who we are talking about, they don't buy that sort of stuff. 
You know, you're absolutely right. It's, a, it's an excellent comment. Absolutely. But this isn't where these people are all about. Let's just end on the other side. What I've said is absolutely true. Very important. For those Yemenites who are in that kind of situation, I empathize with them 100%. The other point, and we always have to balance off information, the other point that is very important is that Yemenites are no longer the marginal group, no longer the exotic people. Like many groups in Israel, they're doing well. We live in a little town of 14,000. Yemenites, I have to ask them sometimes their names because their parents have married with different people from different groups. So the, as much as this tragedy is important and it appeals to the population, by the way, it has a political component because during that time of history, Ben-Gurion, that was the Labour Party, the left-wing parties, and now Israel is in the right-wing situation. So if you really want to embarrass the old Labour socialist Zionists, just speak about the, Ethio about the Yemenites, I'm sorry, because then it says those who, those, those who the people are who used to rule the country and now we're another group. Everything in, in Israel, everything in America is political, everything's in Israel is political. So, so that's where it is. So that's the story. Long story, sometimes painful. The good news, whatever one says, that when the 44,000 came to Eretz Israel, they had lives that were so much better than would have been the case if they'd stayed in Yemen. And we just have to read the daily news where the Saudis are bombing Yemen pretty much day in and day out uh, to realize what could have been. The few hundred who remained there over the years were brought out, slowly but surely, about 500 altogether. In a strange situation, some were caught by the Satmar, you know, the, ultra, you know, the kind of more radical uh, ultra-Orthodox Haredim, and actually taken to the United States and were horrified by the way that the Satmar demanded that they live somewhere in, in the United States. Uh, so all these things carry on. I mean, basically, what am I talking about? I'm talking about Jewish history. Good days, bad days. And now we're in where we are. Life is a whole lot better. Thank you very much. We have about... 10 minutes or so, any questions on any issue, I'll be absolutely delighted to try and answer. Please. Yes, um, this is not a question as much as a comment. In 1955, when I spent a year in Israel, jewelry and other crafts were totally Taman Yemenite. It was something magnificent. I still have many pieces even, and um, there were virtually no retail stores in Israel at that, at that stage, except for gift shops and jewelry stores and crafts. And they, and of course, I have to mention is, uh, Yemenite dancing, which influenced the very basic folk dancing of Israel in addition to the Hora from, from the Eastern European countries. And it was, um, an enrichment, I guess, for the country that most of the Western world had, had not seen or exposed to, and it was just absolutely beautiful. Yes. So, so, lovely. 
Terrific, terrific point. Thank you so much. Cultural impact of the Yemenites, exactly as you said, has been outstanding. By the way, the only other thing in the mid-1950s which Israel had were Jaffa oranges. So that was the wealth of the state of Israel, Yemenite jewelry and Jaffa oranges. What has been, if at all, the political participation in, you know, in Israeli politics of the Yemenite Jews? Uh, the, the Yemenites have been very involved. They tend to be right of center. Um, they've been quite important, by the way. There's been a chief of staff who was a Yemenite. There's been one or two uh, cabinet ministers who were Yemenite. They, they've been pretty vocal. They have been, you know, relative to a small number. They're a small group, 44,000. In politics, a bit few in academia, definitely in the army. Um, because they have Arabic background, the armies uses them in the intelligence units and, and places like that. They also, by the way, you know, this is the figure we never know. Some of them are looking very much like local populations in the Middle East, uh, travel around as locals and do some of the wonderful things that they do for the state of Israel. So that, that also exists. Sorry, I'll go this way and then I'll go to the other side. Uh, I have to take issue with one part of your description of the immigration because I was married to a Yemenite. I had the pleasure of being part of a Yemenite family for a long time, including a khina, a henna ceremony, and all of the rituals you described. But my former mother and father-in-law who came from Yemen and were, were orphans when they arrived, um, told about the, the way the Jewish agency... Um, those who recruited them and brought them and put them in the kibbutzim and the youth aliyah villages very forcefully encouraged them, almost it was, forced them to get rid of their Yemenite clothing, to put on shorts. My, my former mother-in-law, who was a religious girl from Yemen, talked about how horrified she was to have to put on khaki shorts, to learn Zionist songs, to stop using their language, to stop praying like Yemenites. So it wasn't all smooth. There was a lot of Zionist coercion from, from the Jewish agency, from the Ashkenazi Jews, and only in the last few decades have they really reclaimed some of those Yemenites regret that they didn't teach their children. I forget the name of the book with all the poetry and uh, the songs. So they've tried to reclaim some of their oral tradition and their written tradition because they were told to get rid of it if they wanted to fit into the modern state of Israel. Debbie's absolutely right. The phenomenon of the early Israel was that be an Israeli according to the Ashkenazi Eastern European model. You're absolutely right. True with the Yemenites and true with just about every other immigrant who came in in the early period. I agree with you. Thanks. I can only uh, confirm what Deborah uh, said. Uh, mixed marriages, as, we, as it, they were called, uh, was a no-no. Uh, and where person where family tragedies, I had a, a friend, a colleague from the university. She was of Polish parents, and the and her husband was a Yemeni. He she was. I mean, we are talking about intellectual, uh, intelligent people. Not uh, he was a lawyer at the uh, new law department of the state of Israel. She was a teacher, but never mentioned that. This is a mixed marriage, and that was 
a, a tragedy that lasted quite a bit. And then I want to tell you that the, the, Gmalim on the, the Gmalim on Tel Aviv that were carrying Ziv Ziv were by Temanim. <laughs> the camels on Tel Aviv. Okay, fine. Just quick question and I'll try and give a quick answer. And what's the um, current status of the Yemenite community? Are they separate? Have they maintained their cultures, their language, their, their prayers? To what extent have they assimilated? There are certain Moshavim collective villages, I'm sorry, certain uh, Moshavim, uh, which are Yemenite villages, and certain parts of Israel are Yemenite areas, where, as Debbie mentioned, they've now gone back to their Yemenite uh, uh, heritage. It's very popular, by the way. You know, it's not one of those heritages which you kind of today have to put on the side. So uh, just to give an example, my wife's in a, in a singing group. Uh, half Ashkenazi woman and half uh, Yemenite woman, and she says the Yemenite women are far better than the others <laughs> because they're great. Culturally, they've had a, a very uh, important kind of influence, and economically, they're sort of on the kind of middle class level. Um, but yes, retention of culture and return of culture. By the way, there's been a lot of literature, the coffee books. You know, you say, what are, what are books that you put on the table with lovely pictures? It says something about a society. It says that people are interested in learning about them. People are interested in learning about the Yemenites. They have a good, good uh, vibe within Israeli society today, which you can't say about all the groups, so that's important. If you can just pass to behind you. I just feel the need to make a quick comment is that this must, these court cases must be incredible messes because um, in the world of adoption, the rules, the practices, the laws have changed dramatically just in the last generation and everything. And what was considered right and good in the 50s, 1950s is totally different in this country than today and in what the practice are. So this, I can't imagine the mess that this court case is. And just to emphasize what you've said, which is right, the, um, the, the recording of information was so bad in 1949, 1950. Remember, many of the civil servants were not fluent in English. They themselves had arrived in Israel a, de, a year or two before, and they weren't fluent. So the language issue and the documentation and where they were put and where the material was kept has made these three... Commissions of inquiry, as you correctly say, almost impossible. Have we got time for one more question? Yeah, please. Okay, sorry. Could you just pass it uh, to the mic over, please? Thank you. Uh, the, the Yemenite have um, a musical tradition of not using instruments. Is that, uh, was that forbidden under the Pact of Omar? I can't remember it being part of the Pact of Omar. I don't know. Some of them did have musical instruments, but I'm not, I, I wouldn't know the answer for that, to be honest. So, sorry, a little louder? I could well be. Could well be. Okay, I think uh, time is up, so over to Ari. Yeah, let, me, let me ask uh, two quick questions to follow up. <clears throat> How, what percentage of Israel today is Yemenite? Is there, like, what percentage of the population? 
It's a very small percentage, because if at the very most 50,000 came in, um, I imagine it's a you know, 2 3% group, which is well known, you know, much more than the 2 or 3%. I would imagine not much more than that. Then when we go to Israel, we'll have to get recommendations of where to get the best Yemenite food. So I'll talk to you. I will talk to Debbie. I will share the information with you all. Tonight, the professor will be at uh, Congregation B'nai Tzedek. Topic at 7.30 p.m., the Arab citizens of Israel, Israelis or Palestinians. I hope you will join us. Have a great day. If you have time, go for a hike in the back area there. If not, go back wherever you're going. I'm going to work. Thank you. <laughs>